1947, Arthur Miller wrote a play called All My Sons. And the inspiration for this play was based off of a, a true story uh, that back in the early 1940s, there was a, a company called the Wright Aeronautical Corporation. And one of the things that this company had to do was that, that a contract to build engines uh, for war t- warplanes for times of war. And there was such a demand to pump these engines out that they cut some corners and they end up producing faulty engines. And when they came to realize this, um, not wanting to slow things down, not wanting to lose face, not wanting to take a hit to production, uh, they actually pushed them through and then actually kind of uh, um, bribed a lot of the inspectors to be able to get false reports that then say, hey, these are good to go and sent off into battle. And so this play, All My Sons, is based off of that story. And in the play, uh, the faulty parts lead to the death of 21 pilots. Uh, if you're familiar with the band 21 Pilots, that's actually where they get their name from, is inspired from this play. Um, it, it's just this, they want to be reminded of the importance of your decisions when you have a moral dilemma in front of you. And how it may not have an impact right in that moment, but it could set up for an impact later that you may not even be aware of. So the question we're asking here this morning is, what would lead someone to knowingly send out faulty parts and endanger lives? Especially if the lives that, that are now in danger, those who've already put their lives into in dangerous situations, and now we're, we're making it that much more difficult. What, what, what would lead someone to do that? Well, see, I, I think it's the same thing that would lead, back in the early 1990s, Tanya Harding to cover up her knowledge of the attack on her teammate and rival, Nancy Kerrigan, when Tanya Harding's ex-husband had arranged to have uh, Nancy Kerrigan's kneecaps attacked. And, and uh, eventually, all this came to light, and Tanya Harding w- w- would be um, kicked out of this ice skating community altogether. I-, I think the thing that would lead us to be able to send out faulty parts is the same thing that led to the fall of Tiger Woods. As while he was at the peak of his career, uh, his personal life was a mess. He just had all kinds of infidelity, and when that kind of uh, came to light, over a dozen women came forward to kind of share their story of uh, their time with Tiger, and his, you know, he lost his family, uh, just his career just, just derailed. And he's just slowly starting to kind of get back into that, the career piece, but man, he just imploded his life. And I think the thing that led to that is the same thing that led to Lance Armstrong, uh, which eventually led, where he basically cheated, doped, with the Tour de France seven times. And all seven titles were stripped away from him. What would lead pro athletes, the best of the best, to cheat, lie, and deceive, whether at the game or in their individual lives? Well, see, I think it's the same thing that led the captain of the Titanic to go full steam ahead into waters that were known to have icebergs and to ignore some other warnings. He wanted to uh, beat some of the other records for how fast you could get through these icy passageways yeah so what would lead someone to do something like that when the lives of so many are in their hands and see I, I, honestly I, I think it's the same thing that led me in, in my uh schooling i can remember times in junior high you get those assignments where you had to do so much reading and you had to track your reading and, and uh, i was the master of rounding up and, and so if i was reading and you know, every hour is what you track Man, if I read one hour and one minute, if I read 61 minutes, guess what I wrote down? That's two hours right there. It's not one hour. It's more than one hour, and we're just tracking hours, so that's two hours. 
What would lead us to things like that? Well, I don't know if you have any guesses. We've kind of already let the cat out of the bag a little bit here in our time together, but I think the answer to all those questions is pride. It's pride that would lead any one of those individual stories that I shared in my own story to these decisions that can have different impacts in our lives. I'm not talking about the kind of pride that you have in your heritage. What were you... You know where you're from and your background, and you just have a joy and a celebration of that. That's not the pride I'm talking about. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of pride where we find joy and support. Uh, we want to show support in the achievements of others. Uh, I don't know about you, but we just had parent-teacher conferences this past weekend, or just past couple days, and it was, I, I'm so proud of my girls. Um, and they'll say, don't give a son to, he's not in school yet, so back off. Um, but I'm so proud of my girls for the reports of how they've grown and, and, and just the desire to, to, to learn. And that's, that's, that's a healthy kind of pride. I'm not even talking about the kind of pride that consists of a group of lions in a social unit. At least one of you got that. It's, it's early, I know. Maybe I'm just not that funny, I don't know. Can't be that. <laughs> the pride I'm referring to and the focus of our series here for the, over the next couple weeks is the unmerited elevation of self. The unmerited elevation of self. The quality of having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. And see, my, my goal here this morning, one of the main things I want to spend some time doing, is I want to get us all at the same starting point where we could all say, yes, I struggle with pride. I think some of us can see it, but are going to have a hard time admitting it. And some of us have a hard time because we, we don't even see it. I, I, I don't know. This, this might not be the, ser- the ser- sermon series for me, Steve. I don't really have much of an issue with pride. Well, let's see. What, what does pride do? Pride is what keeps us from saying I'm sorry when I'm wrong. Pride is what keeps me from saying I'm sorry when I'm 5% wrong and the other person is 95% wrong. That 5% wrong is still wrong. Pride is what gets us to the the need to have to say the last word in any argument, as if somehow having that last say, that last word, elevates your position within the argument. Pride is what keeps us from admitting what we don't know. When's the last time you said, I don't know where I'm going, whether physically in life or, or, or more metaphorically speaking? Or say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to move forward. See, pride keeps us from being honest with ourselves. It keeps us from being honest with others. It keeps us from being honest with ourselves about our weaknesses, about our shortcomings, about our faults. We don't want to face the truth about really kind of how how much of a mess we can be at times. We don't want to be honest with others because we don't want them to see how much of a mess we can be sometimes. We don't want them to know the things that we don't know. This past week, I had a opportunity to spend some more time with Devin, our, our worship director, and um, we were in a car driving back from our meeting, back, heading back to church here, and uh, he's kind of sharing what he's covering in school, and he has to write an uh, ethnography paper, and, and so I, I just kind of looked at Devin, I called me and said, I know what that is, but can you explain what that is for everyone else in the car? It was just me and Devin in the car. We, we don't want to admit what we don't know. Pride keeps us from celebrating the success of others. This one hits home sometimes, right? When you see someone else's success, you see someone else's achievement, pride puts us in a place where we can't fully celebrate that. Whether it's because jealousy begins to creep in, or it says, well, 
I, I should have had that first. How come that wasn't me? How come that's not my story? Pride leads to a harsh spirit as we seek to diminish sometimes the accomplishments of others. Pride keeps things superficial, right? We want to focus on what other people think of us, and so we need to hide all, all the deep mess. We try to polish the outside and have things look just so. It always reminds me of when, when Jesus is giving some woes to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his days, and he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Imagine going to a, a, a cemetery and just seeing this beautiful marble headstone. It's like, well, that's all shiny and, all, and beautiful, but it, it marks where there's death inside and decay. Pride leads us to the superficial life where we, we hide the, the, the mess inside. We try to keep things looking just right on the outside. All our energy goes to that. We're afraid to go deep for people to truly see who we are. When we would rather cheat over losing, that's because of pride. When we would rather lie instead of face the harsh realities before us or deal with the truth. Maybe it's not even something all that harsh. Maybe it's just a truth you just don't want to deal with. When we choose lying over the truth, that's because of pride. We'd rather keep people at a distance instead of truly step into genuine relationship. And I, and I say step in to relationship specifically because there's a part of a relationship, any kind of relationship, where you do, you know, you, that, that phrase, you kind of stepped in it. You know, relationships are messy. No matter how awesome, amazing they are, there's going to be challenging moments, and it's our pride that keeps us uh, from almost sometimes putting a stiff arm up and saying, no, I'm going to keep you at this set distance because I don't want you to truly know who I am because once we get deep, man, there's, there's, some, there's a little bit of mess in there. I mean, think about when you have someone over to your home. There's certain rooms they can go in, right? And there's certain rooms they can't. It's easy to keep your foyer clear because you can just shove everything other places in the house. But the more someone comes into your house, the less places you have to hide all your junk. That's why I'm thankful we have a basement. <laughs> have I covered everybody yet? Are we all at a place where we can say, yes, I struggle with pride? You know, chances are that there might be some of us still who aren't fully believers. See, the, the counter to pride, the opposite of pride, is humility. And, and, and leave it to us, man. We mess that up too, don't we? If you haven't connected with anything I've hit on yet this, this morning, talking about uh, how pride presents itself, it's possible you either have or have thought about nudging your neighbor and saying, by the way, I, I don't connect with any of those. I'm not prideful in any of those ways. You are now being prideful about your humility. You're saying, I'm so humble that I don't struggle with pride. And you've now messed up humility. I mean, that, that's, that's where we go, right? We can even mess up humility in our pride. See, pride is a serious issue because of what it gives birth to. It gives birth to so many other issues in our life. In his book, Mere Christianity, Christian thinker and author C.S. Lewis says this, According to Christian teachers, the, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to, the, to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. See, I, I believe pride is a serious issue because it keeps us from a growing relationship with God. Despite all the other garbage that comes with, with unchecked pride, with undealt with pride, pride ultimately keeps us from a growing relationship with God. See, one key aspect of the gospel and the, the, this good news of Jesus, our Savior, one who saves, 
is a people in need of being saved, right? If we look at the story of the gospel, one part we don't talk about much because that's usually the role we fill, is that there's a people in need of being saved. But if our pride is saying you don't need to be saved, you can see how that keeps us from our relationship with God. Even after we trust in him, become a disciple of Jesus, and we begin to know who God is through his son, through his spirit, through his revelation. And we come to know who he is, and, but we still say, you know what, there's parts that, I'll, I'll go take care of these aspects of my life first. God, I, I can do it on my own. This isn't for you. Our pride continues to kind of put that separation where we say, God, I, I don't need you to save me in this moment. Let me take care of it and get it all cleaned up, and then we'll come back and, and have a good relationship. One key aspect of the gospel and a Savior is a people in need of saving. If pride keeps us from admitting our issues that we need anything, then that will keep us from God. Psalm 10, 4 says it this way, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. You can see how pride just gives birth to all kinds of difficulty. Pride keeps us from knowing and growing in relationship with God. C.S. Lewis continues in, in, in his kind of speaking on pride. He says this, in mere Christianity, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on, on uh, things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. What's interesting is, see, this isn't really just kind of a, a rogue thinking. If we look through the history of, of uh, Christian authors and Christian thinkers, uh, those who followed Jesus and trusted in him, this is more a summation of those who've gone before us. Go back to St. Augustine and Aquinas and, and go more recent uh, Calvin and Luther and, and other modern-day scho- uh, scholars today agree that, man, pride is just, that's something that just messes us up. So the question is, if it's so serious, why pride? Why, why do we get prideful? This is something that can do so much pain, so much destruction, so much division between us and God. Why is it so darn attractive? Why is it so easy to kind of fall into? And I think it's one aspect is this, the promise of pride. The promise of pride is greatness, right? It, in small ways, you can have small greatness, or in large ways. The promise of pride is greatness. Whether it be glory as you celebrate a victory or a win and make much of yourself in those moments. Or if it's being able to successfully hide, even maybe just for a season, some of the garbage going on in your life, you can hide that and just show the superficial uh, 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 person or you, who you desire to be, who you wish you were. You can say, oh, other people look at this and they think I'm great and we have this sense of greatness. And I think pride just feeds that ego. The promise of pride is greatness. And that's, to be great is quite simply great, right? Those moments in your life where you felt that, it, it feels good. It, it's, it's, it's good to see, like, to, to be the victor and get the, the praise and the glory or, or to be the one who knows how to accomplish something or to seem like you have it all together at moments. But as the saying goes, pride comes before the fall. Because if the promise of pride is greatness, the product of pride is an even greater fall. See, as humans, we fall. We fall short of the glory of God, that he, of what God has for us. And that's why he sent us Jesus. As a resolution, as a redemption from our own sinful ways, our own ways, our own wicked ways, we've gone against God. That we could trust in Jesus and not only be forgiven of our sin, 
but then ushered into a new life in Jesus. So we all fall, but the product of our pride is an even greater fall. You can uh, Google celebrating too early. If you've never done that, I encourage you to. It's a, it's a good laugh. It's, it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of sad when you stop and realize the reality of what you're seeing. If you Google celebrating too early, you see a, a video record of great falls due to pride, where people think they have the competition clinched. They think they got that touchdown. They think they've crossed the line, and so they throw the ball down in, in, in a carefree mindset, and they realize they're only on the one-yard line when they threw the ball down. Or they're in that race, and they realize that there's no one around, and they're going to win it, so they slow down, and they kind of play to the crowd, and they don't even see the person in their blind spot who puts on the afterburners and passes them for a victory. My favorites, uh, I feel bad to call it my favorite because it's someone failing, but my favorites... <laughs> are the bicycle races. You get the guy at the end, he puts, starts pumping both hands, and then he gets off balance, and the bike just wibbles, and he falls over, and he's trying to get back on the bike, and the guy behind him sees his opportunity, and he's just booking it. I'm a monster. <laughs> you have these competitors who have worked and trained hard. Victory is in their reach, yet they lose it all at that final moment because of their pride. We've seen how others have, a, have sabotaged their entire life because they've built it on this thing of pride. See, pride isn't the truth. Pride isn't honest with, with who we are. If we were to build a house with pride, it's not a solid foundation or anything that will truly hold. It's something that will look good just long enough for the warranty to wear off, and then it will fall apart. And you could say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. I'm, I'm willing to take the, 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 some of the pain of that, but the more our pride builds us up, the greater the fall. Think back to those initial stories and examples that I walked through. And some of us, the pride may not be right in that moment, or I'm sorry, that the fall may not be right in that moment of our pride. It may be seasons later, maybe years later, maybe decades later. It may come at the end of our life. It may even, the, the full weight of it may be realized after we've gone where our legacy is destroyed and tarnished because it's finally shown for what it is. John Stott, a, a leader, in the worldwide evangelical movement said this. He says, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. If pride is our greatest enemy, if pride only lifts us up so we have farther to fall, well then humility is our greatest friend. Throughout this series, we're seeking to deal with our pride and pursue humility. Uh, we'll see that this greatness that we desire, honestly, is not found in pride. But if we're really longing for greatness, it's found in humility. Those who are followers of Jesus know and are we, we understand, or at least are beginning to understand, that that greatness is in following Jesus. But in any aspect of life, our humility will lead to greatness. If you got your Bibles, open up to John chapter three. We're going to end our time here in John three. Uh, verse twenty-two is where he kind of begins to set the stage of our text. It'll be at the, on the screen here in a moment as well. And if you want to go digital and turn on your Bible, please do that. Anything to get the Word of God in front of you. Uh, we often say uh, Version is a great app you can download for your smartphone or tablet. Um, or if you need a Bible, man, take the ones that we have in the pew, make it your own, highlight it, mark in it, make notes, uh, make that your own. If you know somebody that needs a Bible, take one and give it to them. That's not stealing. You can have it. We're saying take it and, and, and bless them with it. We have extras just for that purpose. But in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, we see that Jesus 
and, and some disciples are heading out to the Judean countryside to go baptize some people. The text says the water is plentiful. There's plenty of space to go baptize some people. So Jesus is out there baptizing people. But then all of a sudden we see that John is there doing the same thing. Awkward. He just got set up doing some baptisms. All of a sudden Jesus shows up and he's going to do some baptisms too. And also the crowd starts going towards Jesus a little bit. And, and, and so at this point in history, baptism was this, this ceremonial cleansing, this, this act of repentance of sin. And, and so this conversation starts, and this picks up here in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. There, there may have been an actual question in there. The text doesn't uh, uh, record the question, but if we keep reading, we see John gives an answer to their statements. But see, John's goal, John's role in life was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so when he's baptizing people, calling people to repent, he's saying, I, I, I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And when Jesus enters the picture, you know what John does? He lives up to that call. And he says, that's the guy. That's the one. And so when Jesus shows up in this moment uh, to start baptizing others, John's not all of a sudden like, oh, I, I got to try to you know, step up my game and, and you know, build my crowd. He's like, no, that's, that's the guy I told you about. Go to him. Engage with him. He, he's the one that I came to, to prepare the way for. See, if, if pride were allowed to kind of step into this moment and impact John's response, I think John may have kind of one of these moments where he's like, hey, uh, just you know, guys, the water is, is better over here. It's just, you know, we got a little bit of a sandier beach prepared. So if you want to get baptized in rocks, go to Jesus. If you want to get baptized on the beach, you know, come on, come on over here. And just so you know, um, uh, I've been baptizing a little longer than Jesus has. No offense, son of God, but um, I, I've got that Duncan swoop, you know, real good. And so, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's, it's like a thrill ride, man, just down and up, and you don't see it coming. You, you, you love it, you're a little scared, but you like that, I, I don't know. John may try to, like, sell him, but pride's not stepping in the picture here because John has an appropriate view of himself, especially in relationship to Jesus, because he came to prepare the way. And so we see, here's a response with no pride whatsoever. John 3, verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I'm not the guy coming. I'm just the guy to hold the door when he does come. I'm just the guy to get the way ready. So John doubles down on all that he said before, making much of Jesus. I'm not the guy, he is. I'm nothing but the messenger sent to prepare the way. Jesus is the big deal. But he also shares this glimpse of his right view of self, which I would see as a beautiful picture of John's humility. He's been given this very important task, and instead of allowing pride to swell up and to be this thing that just kind of puffs him up to where all of a sudden he feels self-important, he realizes Man, there's nothing I have that wasn't given to me from God. And he shares this heart of humility. Do you believe that statement? There's nothing I have that wasn't given to me from God. See, I think honestly we can take everything in our lives and put it in two categories. First category is this, what I received from God. So you can fill that category with a whole bunch of stuff. 
Anything that does not fit in that category, what I receive from God, I think falls into this category. What I've done with what I've received from God. So what I've received from God and what I've done with what I've received from God, which ultimately is just stewardship. That's not a new thing at all. That's just how I've stewarded the gifts that God has given me. Let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Imagine a farmer who was given a seed, and he grew that seed, and from that plant, he harvested the seeds that came from that plant, and he planted those. And so now he's got a slightly larger spot. You know, still the spot. He had one seed, he planted it, grew, and now he's got a little bit bigger spot, and he gets kind of a, a nice little uh, uh, kind of, um, I don't know, something you put out in front of your house kind of display, and, and he harvests all the seeds off of that. Now he can kind of plant the small garden, and, and, and he takes all the seeds from that. And the next year, man, now we're finally starting to get a plot where he's got to kind of do a little extra work, get the land ready, and, and he plants all that seed. And, and before long, he has this massive harvest, this massive farm, and this production going on, and just pumping out all kinds of seed. If John is to be believed, John said, there's nothing that I have that I didn't receive from God. What about all the hard work that farmer put in? He was just given one little seed. All, everything else that came from that point was because of that farmer. Do you think that's true? Well, I think there's that stewardship piece, which is why I have that second category. But where did he put that seed? In the ground. Where did he get the ground from? Okay, well, yeah, but, you know, that field was a little rocky, so he had to do some work, and he had to, okay, well, how did, how did he clear out the first field? Oh, he just used his own hands and, and a shovel. Okay, where did he get those hands from? Well, well yeah, but I mean, he, he pumped some iron, and he worked out, so he was able to really work this stuff well, and and so he put the seeds in the ground, and he made sure that the crops, uh, uh, the weeds weren't, weren't crowding them out. He p- picked all the weeds, and he made sure to have some way to deal with all the pests. Oh, so how did he know to do that? Well, he read some books, and he learned some stuff. Well, what did he use to learn some things? Well, he used his brain. Well, where, where did he get that from? Well, how did, the, how did the seeds grow? Well, he stuck them in the dirt, which wasn't his, right? Yeah, it wasn't his dirt, but he stuck them in the dirt, and they grew. He watered them and fertilized Okay, so... Where'd the water come from? Well, the sky. It just fell out of the sky and landed. But see, the more you unpack this, we see that truly everything we have is from God. Where you were born, when you were born, the opportunities you have, the opportunities you don't have. The more we look at this with a truly humble perspective, there's nothing we have that wasn't given to us from God. And so then our response, our response to what God has given us is how can we steward this well? these gifts that God has given us and, and be a blessing to others and, and make something with this that, that, again, ultimately it's God who made it. If you need another example of what this looks like, imagine have a sand, having a sandcastle building competition with God. So it's already a little challenging. You're in a challenge up against God, but he's going to say, I'll, I'll tie one hand behind my back and we could have a sandcastle building competition. Uh, one, one rule, bring your own sand. And I'm not saying like, you have to go hard, you know, find your own sand. No, no, you have to make your own sand. Well, I, I can't. I, I can go dig some up off a beach, or I can you know, do, buy some of the store. I can't make my own sand. Because everything we've been given, all that we have is from God. Only the pride of man looks at the majesty, the grandness, the vastness of this creation. As we look at our nation, we look at the world, we look at the solar system, 
We go beyond that to see other galaxies, other stars, and just the vastness of it. Only the pride of man can look at all that and say, I am the center of it all. And yet that's the road we walk. John continues in his humility. He says here in uh, John chapter 3, verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, this, this realization that all that we have, John's acknowledgement all that he has is from God, isn't a negative thing. He said, that's an amazing thing. I get to be a friend of the bride and the bridegroom. I'm there at the wedding. When all of a sudden I hear it's time for them to get married, I'm celebrating. This is awesome. Uh, this is pump- I'm pumped for this. Man, Jesus, let's go. Let's do this thing. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, I, I said my goal for this morning is that we would all begin at the same place of acknowledging that we have a pride issue. That's my, my, my second goal is that we'd also begin to live in a greater capacity to whatever extent you're living it today, this truth of John's. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Jesus, Jesus must increase. First of all, let's just clarify here. There is nothing we can do to increase who Jesus is. That's not what John is saying. Jesus is God. We are his creation. There's nothing we can do to increase who he is. But we say, what he's saying, Jesus must increase. There is much we can do to increase in our relationship with Jesus. There's much we can do to increase in our relationship with Jesus. I would encourage you to find time this week to find a way to worship him. I think sometimes we, we, we boil worship down to these 20 minutes, corporately gathered together, being led by someone with an instrument and a voice, singing praise songs to God. Is that an act of worship? Yes. Yes, it is. But worship is so much broader than that. Worship is this living our lives in view of the truth of God. When we obey God and go His way instead of our own, that's an act of worship. When we give to others, when we serve others, that's an act of worship. When we sacrifice in obedience to God, that's an act of worship. Maybe your next step is just simply to um, take that time of, of, of praising God through song and, and bring it into your home. Bring it into your life outside of the corporate time here. Expand on your worship to God. In doing so, we increase our relationship with Jesus. Be willing to change increases Jesus. Being willing to say, Jesus, there's ways that I need to grow. There's ways that I'm a mess and I need you to do a work in me. It's only through you that that can happen. And I want to steward what you give me. I want to make the most of it, but I need you to do a work in me, Jesus. Engage in spiritual conversation with someone else in your life. It doesn't have to be one of those ones where you're beating them upside the head with your Bible saying, did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Just ask a question. Hey, you ever think about this? You ever wonder what Jesus thinks about that? What Jesus would say to so-and-so and engage in a spiritual conversation in greater capacity in your, your, your day-to-day life. Spend time with Jesus. Find time to get away, whether it's be in silence and solitude or just to kind of step aside for a minute, whether it be in his word or through prayer. Spend time with Jesus. If you haven't already and you're a follower of Jesus, be baptized. 
When you're baptized, it's, it's an acknowledgement that it's not me, it's Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus for all things. That's why I'm getting baptized, because I'm trusting in him. He was the one who, who, who overcame death, and I'm joining with him in that, but he's the one who gives me that. Speak more of Jesus in your home, in your work, in your life. Something that I think has happened over the past decade or two is we've made talking about Jesus so stinking weird. You ever, you ever experienced that? We're like, just trying to have a talk about your faith. Just, we use these weird words, and, and, and we, it's always something like we, we lose our minds and just don't know how to talk about Jesus. I would encourage you, in humility, let us all find a way to talk about Jesus this week. Use this as an example. Hey, can, here's a new topic. So my pastor's crazy, and he said, hey, talk about Jesus today. So what do you think about Jesus? And that just starts a conversation. But things like this is how we increase Jesus. And then I must decrease is the other half of that. Humble yourself and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If we keep reading through John 3, we get to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. We see the key difference is Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, the wrath of God remains on him. Life eternal is found in Jesus. Apart from him, we remain separated from God in our sin. Our sin is undealt with apart from Jesus. Pastor and author Tim Keller from his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, talks about what it's like to meet a gospel, humble person. Someone who has been impacted by the truth of Jesus, who is living a life of increasing Jesus and, and decreasing themselves. They live a life focused on others, and he kind of unpacks us a little bit. I think this is what it would be like engaging with John, John the Baptist, where he's a, a gospel-humbled person. Timothy Keller says this, The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humbled person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needed, is not needing to think about myself. So I would encourage us all that we would decrease, that not that we would think less of ourselves, but that we would think of ourselves less that we would see ourselves through Jesus' eyes. And in light of the acknowledgement that all that we have is from him, we would live a, lives, live a life that says Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So where do you see pride hiding in yourself? Spend time this next week having that conversation with yourself, having that conversation with your loved ones. See, sometimes we need some help in this, right? Pride blinds us. Pride says you're good. You got it. Perfect. You don't need any work anywhere. But there's things we can't see. I, I just had someone out to, uh, we had some mildew and mold that was growing on our siding, and this was easy just to kind of hire someone to tackle this job. And so a gentleman came out yesterday and, and power washed our house for us. As I'm just walking around, just kind of seeing his work, uh, I found three holes in my siding. And, and as I looked a little closer, it was very evident uh, that it wasn't his fault. It wasn't stuff that he did. It was just there had always been holes in my siding. I've lived in that house for six years and been outside around that house quite often, 
and I couldn't see that there were three holes in my siding until we power washed it. There's so much that we can't see. And so engage in this conversation about where your pride is with someone you know that loves you and someone that is at least in a similar journey with you, um, is, is on a journey with Jesus, either loves Jesus or that they're willing to engage with who he is. Say, so help me see where my pride gets in the way. And then we'll continue in this journey over the next couple of weeks.